Welcome to the Michigan Minds Podcast, a quick and informative analysis of today's top issues from University of Michigan faculty. Thank you so much for joining Michigan Minds. I'm very excited about our guest today. So I'm going to go ahead and ask him to introduce himself and share a little bit about what he does at the University of Michigan. Hi, my name is Perry Sampson. I'm a professor in climate and space sciences and engineering in the College of Engineering at the University of Michigan. It's my 43rd year on the faculty at the University of Michigan. And in that position, I have done research on air quality, long-range transport of air quality, acid rain back in the day, ozone, and the like. And then they gave me tenure. And at that point, I decided that part of my effort ought to be going to thinking about how to teach uh, in a way that's, that is more accessible to more students. And that led to a whole new area of, of enterprise for me, research on how students learn, in particular, how students learn climate science. And from that, uh, virtually everything that I've been developing in terms of innovation has been based on a need that I had in the classroom. That's fascinating. Um, we're, you know, we're going to dive in and talk about a lot of your, your different accomplishments and achievements and you know, great work over your career. And I was you know, planning to ask how, how this transition happened. So um, from, from the research focus into these more accessibility learning tools. You were recently awarded this year's Distinguished University Innovator Award, which honors faculty members who have developed transformative ideas, processes, or technologies and successfully took them to market. So congratulations, first off. And how does it feel to be awarded this honor? My gosh, is that humbling or what? I mean, think about all the innovation happening uh, at the University of Michigan in medicine and and, and many other engineering, all the fields. Uh, I am excited, first of all, that uh, they have honored uh, someone doing work on education technology, because one would argue that, that should be one of the areas of focus. How do we do our best job at, at offering our students a good education? So thinking about how to create these sorts of technologies has, um, well, it's just, I'm just honored. And, and before we begin, uh, I want to make sure that uh, I state that all of the innovations that I'm associated with are largely the work of students uh, from the University of Michigan. I like, I like to say that I think I have like one of the best jobs on campus. You know, step one, I get paid to talk about the weather. How good is that? And then, and part two is, uh, it's just the opportunity to throw half-baked ideas into this sea of uh, amazing students uh, who run with these ideas. And they don't all work, but my gosh, some of them do. And, uh, and most of the progress we've made has been on the shoulders of the students here at the university. I want to ask you about a few of the different technologies that you've developed. So first, can you tell us about the groundbreaking Blue Skies application and how that was developed? Yes, I'm going to embarrass myself here by walking through the, that process. Step one was I needed weather for my nine o'clock class. 
And this was back in the day that there wasn't an internet yet. There was precursors to it, NSFNet. And one of my students, Jeff Masters, decided that he would build a Telnet session. And that Telnet session for for the younger people in the audience, that's basically a you're doing you're doing just doing commands onto the screen. And with that, uh, Jeff built a system called the Weather Underground, which allowed us, us and me to go in and pick any particular uh, town in the country and pull up the current weather there. And now I walked into class and looked like weather god. I just knew what the weather was everywhere. And that was spectacular. We had as many as 50 people a week using that system, and we pretty much knew them all on a first name basis. And then, as I recall, a hurricane happened on the East Coast. I think it was Hurricane Bob back a long time ago. And suddenly we jumped to something like 50,000 in that week. And uh, we, we said to ourselves, this, this network thing could be big someday. So bolstered by that, I had this idea that, I, and this is the embarrassing part, I thought there was a program called HyperCard back in the day. And I argued that, well, maybe we can make a visual version of this in HyperCard, and, uh, and a student came along, uh, undergraduate, Alan Sternberg, who was polite enough to say, that's a, not, didn't say, that's a stupid idea, <laughs> but he was polite enough to come up with a solution using uh, something called Gopher Client. Now, again, this is a history lesson here, but a Gopher Clients were created at the University of Minnesota, Gopher being their, their call name. Uh, so we decided we would make something using that gopher client, which was an interactive map where you could literally roll over cities and now the weather in that city would pop up. <clears throat> and wanting to keep with the uh, school theme, we called it uh, Blue Skies for Go Blue. And the Blue Skies became really the first interactive weather application on this growing internet. So much so that when I went to make presentations about this at conferences, people would be literally sitting in the aisles to see this, this event, this thing. And we would have this dial-in phone connected somewhere and have this connection, which allowed me to show these interactive weather maps. And that was, that was, that was just great fun. Uh, and then, well, that, that gives you the background for how this thing got started. And so... In all of that, you co-founded the Weather Underground, which has become um, an application that a lot of um, smartphone users use daily to keep track of the weather. And how, can you tell us about that progression that has taken this application that you helped um, launch with students and then to where it is now, where it's it's so utilized by so many people? There again, uh, it's on the shoulders of the students that uh, Alan Sternberg uh, got his degree here at uh, Michigan. He went to Stanford to get his uh, master's degree. And there he started working on the concept that he could take this and and now the World Wide Web had happened, and he thought he could build a, a website uh, that would uh, allow students, allow everyone to access, access the weather. And he built that there at Stanford, and he was building it in a team <laughs> that others in his, his class that semester uh, were, were also building websites, and so they'd help each other. Uh, build their websites. Well, one of his one of his teammates was Larry Page, 
and the two of them, uh, you know, built their websites, and it's, which meant that when it, when the initial Google happened and you looked for weather, it was not unlikely that uh, Weather Underground would show up as one of the one of the sites. And then Alan moved off and, and included a number of Michigan uh, students again, Chris Schwerzler, again Jeff Masters, uh, along, along a list of others. And they created this company and hired uh, somebody to do advertising there in California, where it was, he set this up. And I worked with them. I was president of that initial company, but had the good sense to back off quickly because obviously I've got a day job. And they carried that, God bless them, to, uh, to great heights. So I also want to talk about when you were creating and you know helping develop all of these innovative tools, did you imagine it going into an element where it would be used for K through 12 education or where it would be used by just anyone who's looking to check the weather? Um, I know you said that you wanted to know what the weather was. Could you have ever imagined it would go where it's gone? First of all, my memory is probably isn't that good that I can remember back <laughs> that far. Uh, but, uh, I, you know, we, when you start a company, any kind of company, you, you always want to dream big that, you know, this could be, this could be big someday. We had competition, the Weather Channel and AccuWeather. And, uh, and the theme that we had was democratizing data because National Weather Service has weather data. Uh, and the brilliance that Alan and others had at the Weather Underground was, well, let's open this up so people could put their own instruments outside and, and add them to the network. And many, many did to the point that the Weather Underground became the world's basically largest weather data set. Not only that what the, the governments were providing in terms of weather, but also people in their backyards providing and sharing weather information. And that's still, I think, probably one of the more popular parts of that, that service. So democratization of the data, uh, we're quite, quite proud of that, that opened up, they had an API and ability for people to be able to use that data. And, and I think that's, uh, that probably changed the field dramatically. It's remarkable. And after talking with you, this transition that in in reading the work that you've done into learning tools is seamless because it's essentially um, where where everything was heading. So I want to ask you about a few of those learning tools, including lecture tools and learning clues. Can you tell us about those and how they are helping students? Well, lecture tools, again, was a system that, first of all, <clears throat> I was teaching a, a large course on climate change, and we were using clickers in the class, and that engaged the students in some in interaction during class time. But I, but I wanted to do other kinds of questions. Being a meteorologist, uh, I wanted to show a weather map and ask the questions like, where on this map would you expect it to rain today, or where would it should be windy? And I couldn't do that with clickers at that point, at least. So uh, I can program just enough to be able to demonstrate what I want to do. And then again, it's the ability to hand that off to a student. They take it 
and turn it into something uh, that actually works uh, is, has been the process I've used. So I created this initial uh, code that allowed me as the instructor to ask all kinds of questions in the classroom. Not only multiple choice, but these image-based questions, pre-response questions, uh, rearranged list questions. And with that, then uh, I could uh, engage the students in multiple ways to see if they understood what I was talking about. And the students, this is back probably in early 2000s, would lug their laptops to class. And that in those days, those were heavy things. And the students came and said, look, if I'm going to lug this big box brick of a computer to class, here's some other things we think we should do. And so virtually everything I did after that was in response to students telling me what they wanted. Among, the, among those that I'm most proud of is uh, that with lecture tools, students could ask me questions during class. And I'll talk about that in a minute, but that capacity to, so that students could answer my questions, they could ask me questions, made the dialogue, especially in these larger classes, it's often difficult for interaction to happen. This allowed a great deal more interaction. And so we built that up and it was again funded by the National Science Foundation. Uh, but uh, then the Nas National Science Foundation came and said, look, you should think about uh, applying for a small business innovative research grant, SBIR. So I went out and wrote that proposal to create a uh, spinoff from the university. And over time, uh, that became uh, its own company. Jason Aubrey was uh, critical in that. I, I engaged a class at the University of Michigan and how to design this thing. And members of that class that became the leaders in building the system off campus. And it grew over a period of years and wound up having a, a large following um, worldwide, in fact. And then one day, in July of 2012, I got a phone call from Alan Sternberg, who said, you know, this is all under wraps, but you should know that we're selling the Weather Underground to the Weather Channel. And, and we, had, uh, we had done well uh, in that process. And then three weeks later, uh, these fellows showed up from a company called Echo360 and told me they wanted to buy lecture tools. And I truly thought it was some of my friends just uh, pulling one on me. Uh, then we settled on, on that. And then Lecture Tools was acquired by this company, Echo360, and is embedded in now in their software. So, uh, you know, this, the summer of 2012 was an exciting summer because of all this, all this happening, all this happening at once. There's a happy ending there. Also, for the faculty who might be watching this, there's always the question, well, why would, you know, why would I want to do a, get involved in a commercialization effort? Well, that's, that's smart. Uh, it is a pain and a tush to, uh, to pull this kind of thing off. And I don't recommend it for the faint of heart because it's, uh, I, there, there, were a couple, there are a couple of projects I, I won't talk about that failed miserably. And you know, things went downhill, some things failed. And unless you, you know, really believe in what you're doing, uh, this, is not, this is not something to try for. Having said that, the lesson I want to promote here is that while we as faculty may not be excited about doing anything commercial, because we have plenty of 
to do otherwise. There are lots of students out there who do. And I would argue that one of the greatest educational opportunities is get students involved who have that desire, get them involved in entrepreneurship, help them to the degree of finding these funds from the National Science Foundation or other sources. And once they are started, then just get out of the way. Uh, but that, that model has worked uh, famously for me. You've obviously made a vast impact with all of these resources that you've developed and made available to the public. So can you, and you, you've started to really dive into this, but can you elaborate on that importance that you see in translating expertise into not only knowledge, but also tools that can be shared with the general public to utilize? I mean, everybody on campus is doing innovative work. Uh, often this leading towards scholarship and you know, papers and journals and advancing the science and, and technology. Um, my philosophy is that if I build a tool that has uh, sufficient value, one, well, you always have to worry about how are you going to scale this? In education technology, the models include, well, maybe the, maybe the university is going to adopt it and just make it part of their uh, IT department and, and it'll run on campus uh, with, with that support. And that's a, that's a fine model if you want to just keep it on campus. But if you build a tool that um, has value elsewhere, more globally, uh, then it's time to think about how can I scale this using, uh, using a commercialization path. And uh, again, uh, it's, it's, a, it's fraught with danger, uh, but there's lots of lessons I've learned about how to do it in a fairly sane way uh, that allows, the, uh, allows you to move it off campus, um, build it out there, provide what support you need to as a faculty member, but more importantly, uh, just uh, just cheerlead these uh, these students on, and uh, it it can work. It won't always work, but it can work, and it's a way to measure whether this thing has truly a value uh, beyond the initial research. And I, I find that exciting. It's like you're gambling. You're taking. You're putting your energy. It's a lot of time and energy. You're putting your energy into this, and and when it does succeed. Um, you're both shocked that it actually worked, uh, but but it's it's just feedback that you know okay you can do this and and you keep trying you keep trying and that's what keeps me going to try yet ever another another endeavor. Wonderful. Is there anything else you want to add to this conversation before we wrap up? Yes, there is. There are two things I'm going to talk about here. One of them is. Um, Echo 360 is a company that uh, acquired Lecture Tools. And with them, um, we built the, they've built a system so that now students can ask these questions. And I've got a, a project going on now where we're watching or exploring then, how does this change the classroom? So in my class, I've asked the students every semester, how comfortable are you asking a verbal question in class? And we find that there are some cohorts of students, particularly women in the sciences, first generation students, students from English is not their native language, who are far less comfortable asking a verbal question in class. 
But when you offer to them the capacity to ask uh, questions anonymously during class time, my gosh, the, the classroom explodes. Where like last semester, we had 500 questions submitted. Now I've been teaching, as I say, for 43 years. And, and before I use this, I would always go, any questions? And I might get a dozen over the whole semester. Now I'm getting over 500 questions, which is sobering to know how confusing you've been all this time and didn't know about it. So I'm just I'm, I'm, I'm on my soapbox promoting the fact that we need to be adding this sort of capacity for students to, especially in the large intro courses. There, we want students to feel like they belong at the university. And if you can't ask questions and you're looking at everybody else and you think that they're all brighter than you, you don't feel yet like you belong, but if you can pose questions and see your questions are no dumber than anybody else's questions, then hopefully you get the sense that I, I can do this. You know, I can I can play along here, and that's the sort of research we're, we're doing um, on that level. And then the, there's a new project that I haven't even talked about in this that we in commercialization effort called Learning Clues. And Learning Clues is uh, I think this is my best project ever. Uh, and in this project, we literally take the videos that are being recorded in class. And we're able to extract everything that's being said during class, the transcription, but we also extract everything that was visually presented during class. And, and all that goes into a database so that at number one, students can search then, uh, where in class did they talk about a particular topic and it'll take you to that moment in the class uh, where that was discussed. And second, we figure out then what was actually important that was said during class using artificial intelligence. So the students can then pick some series of days, maybe you know September 1 to September 30th, and it'll collect all the important phrases and words that were used over that time and develop and, and present to the students a study guide automatically. Because I'm a lazy man. I don't like making study guides for my students. This way, the system would just make it for us. So I'm excited about this new innovation, about how we could take the information in class and to the benefit of the instructor who doesn't have to now have the burden of making study guides anymore. The student has the advantage of being able to study more efficiently. We think this is gonna be uh, an exciting uh, new addition to, in education technology. That's remarkable. It has so many different benefits for everyone involved. That's really great. I'm so glad that you added that. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Well, we have reached our time with you. Uh, Dr. Sampson, thank you so much. I sincerely appreciate your time and congratulations again on the Distinguished University Innovator Award. Thank you so much, Erica. Thank you for listening to the Michigan Minds podcast a production of the University of Michigan. Join the conversation on social media with hashtag UMichImpact.